Hey guys, it's me, Sarah, from The Lipstick Files. Today I have something very special that I've been working on for the last few weeks. It's a interview that I got to do with a woman named Tanya. She was attacked in her apartment in 1999, and she was kind enough to share her story with us. So I hope you enjoy it. The following content includes details of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a cousin, I'm a friend. I'm a wife, I'm a mom, and I'm a survivor. Life can change in an instant. You don't know how, you don't know where. That's exactly what happened to Tanya on February 1st, 1999, when she woke up to a man standing over her bed. I grew up in a small town in southern Colorado. I was born and raised there, and actually this took place about three blocks from the hospital that I was born in. It's a small farming community, and so I um, I grew up in a farm outside of this town. This is like the biggest town in the area. It's the town that has the college, and so that's why I lived there. I felt like I lived on the safe part of town because... I was blocks away from the college, blocks away from the high school, blocks away from the hospital. It was the more kind of affluent part of town. And I had moved from the other part of town that wasn't as safe and had like more homeless population and more, you know, petty crime and theft and burglary. So I felt like I was on the safe side of the town. I had just graduated from college in December of 1998. I went to school for elementary education and physical education. And then a couple days after graduation, I had reconstructive foot surgery. And so I was recovering from that. Through college, I worked at the local McDonald's, which there's only one in the town. So it's kind of like the place to be. I loved my job. The coworkers were great. It was just a great college job. Um, I would work, you know, the late shift. So we'd get off work at like midnight and, you know, then we'd hang out. And when I had foot surgery, uh, my boss from McDonald's, they worked with me and let me do the like breakfast through lunch rush of um, taking the orders in the back booth where you pay for your food through drive through So I was sitting in back booth on a stool every day from like 10 a.m. to like 5 p.m. It allowed me to still be out there working and hanging out with friends. On February 1st, 1999, Tanya came home from spending the night at her parents' home. She got ready and left to attend a Super Bowl party at her friend's house. The Broncos were playing the Atlanta Falcons, and being Colorado native, I love the Broncos, of course. So I had gone to a friend's house for a Super Bowl party. She was a friend from work and is still a dear friend of mine. I was there at their party until the game ended and afterwards, and then I went home to my own apartment. Tanya lived alone in a one-bedroom apartment on the first floor of her building. She arrived home from the Super Bowl party. When she got home, she brushed her teeth, she put on her pajamas, and she went to sleep. Your home is a place where you should feel safe. But Tanya was about to experience what most of us only see in the movies, a man in her bedroom. I have no concept of what time it was. 
but it was in probably two, three o'clock in the morning, I'm guessing. I woke up to somebody crouching near my bed saying, if you scream, I will kill you. So I didn't scream. And knowing that I could not escape, I didn't scream. I didn't move. I laid there in fear. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I knew it wasn't going to be good. I didn't see a weapon, but in the aftermath of what happened, I knew he had a weapon. He had a knife. What he did from there was he put a blindfold on me. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it seemed kind of like one of those headbands that you wear, like an ear cover headband, because it was like a stocking cap, like feel over my eyes. And then he grabbed my hands and tied them behind my back. And then he ripped my shorts and underwear off and then tied my feet together so I couldn't kick. And then he started raping me. Nearly one in five women will be raped during their lifetime. Tanya didn't have a lot of options to fight her attacker off because remember, she had just had reconstructive foot surgery. Her wrists and feet were bound and she was blindfolded. At first, she was on her back and he covered her face with a pillow. It seemed like he was paranoid that her blindfold wasn't staying on. She couldn't breathe. He then decided to turn her over on her stomach and continue to rape her. I was blindfolded, laying on my back with my hands behind my back, my feet tied together. What I had was I had a water bed. So he rolled me over on my stomach across the bed. And so my neck was like over the edge. I literally had the side of the bed gagging me. I had padding, but even padding doesn't help when the force of someone on top of you is shoving you down into that padding and it's blocking your airway. And so I was trying to like, I had my arms behind my back and I was like kind of, I don't know if I was like trying to grab like his stomach or what, but obviously he was irritated with me doing that. He turned her over again and put the pillow over her face. Again, she struggled to breathe. It was unlikely that Tanya would be able to fight off her attacker because she was still recovering from surgery. So she did the next best thing. She started to plan what she was going to do if she got free. At that point, I'm like, I have to figure out a way to get out of here. I never had the thought that he was going to keep me captive. I had this feeling like once he's done, he's going to leave. And so I started thinking of how am I going to get help? So while he's still raping me, I'm laying there thinking, how do I get out of this? I just thought, okay, who do I call? Like, do I call coworkers? Do I call the police? And the person that came to mind was her friend, Becky. Tanya's thought process was that she didn't want to deal with having to explain to a 911 dispatcher where she lived which apartment it was in the complex, and she didn't want to be found tied up and naked by police officers. If she called her friend Becky, she would know exactly where Tanya lived and that she was on crutches. 
and Tanya felt okay about her friend finding her in such a vulnerable state. When he finished, he got up off the bed, and I don't know what he used, but he kind of like wiped my crotch down, like cleaned up after himself, I guess. I don't know. I just remember him like wiping me. I'm like, that's not going to get rid of DNA. And then I just laid there, and he didn't say anything, and I heard him walk out my front door and shut the door. And then I waited, it seemed like probably five to ten minutes. And I thought I heard like a door shut, like another door in the apartment complex or like a car door like blocks away, you know, like a block away. At that point, I thought, okay, he's not going to come back in. Tanya discovered that the perpetrator must have had a knife with him because he'd punctured a hole in her waterbed. And then I found out later that it was the cord that he cut from my lamp in my bedroom. So he didn't bring anything with him that I know of, but it was the cord to my lamp in my bedroom. After struggling to get out of her bed, she needed to get her blindfold off. She was able to hop over to her dresser, where she had left one of the drawers open a little bit. She was able to use the corner of the drawer to brush her face against it and lift the blindfold off. Tanya knocked the receiver of her home phone off the base and was able to call her friend, even though her hands were tied behind her back. She started yelling into the phone saying, Becky, Becky, help me. I've been raped. She would later learn that it was actually Becky's roommate who answered the phone. After getting a hold of her, I crawled to the front door and I locked it with my mouth so he couldn't come back in. And then, as I'm laying there, leaned back up against the door, waiting for her to come, I'm like, okay, now we need to call somebody. We need an adult to meet us at the hospital. I'm 23. She's 21 or 22. I didn't consider myself an adult. We need somebody there to help us. And so I'm thinking of who of my adult friends lives close? And there's a lady that my mom became friends with because her kids and I were all in school together. So I've known them probably since like junior high. And so she lived, you know, in the same town. So I thought I will call her. Then Be my friend Becky got there and she, she knocks on the door and she's yelling my name. And so I let her in. My friend's a badass. So she brought a baseball bat. She didn't know what she was coming to, and she's, I mean, she's pissed, you know, like, my friend is hurting, and somebody did this to her, and, like, she checks the apartment with a baseball bat. She helped me get clothes on, like, I just threw on a pair of sweatpants and a sweatshirt, got my crutches, um, she loaded me into her car, and we drove the three blocks to the hospital. Tanya and her friend arrived at the emergency room, where they informed the hospital that she had been raped. The police were notified, and Tanya was taken back into a room to get an exam. While I was at the hospital, they obviously check for, you know, they take all kinds of samples, DNA, they take pictures, and he before he'd left, or maybe before, like, while he was tying me up, he, like, used the knife to, like, carve into my back, 
but it wasn't a blood, like there wasn't blood dripping from it, but it, there's definitely signs of that. So they took pictures of that. I think he did that to show that he had a weapon and that he could kill me if he wanted to. Because I remember him doing that. I don't, you know, I don't remember feeling like blood gushing from that. So I know it wasn't a deep wound. It was more like a scratch. Shortly thereafter, our, my family friend came in and they allowed her to come back with me. And she asked, are your parents on their way? And she's like, I will go call them. And so she left and went out and was able to call my parents. And then my parents called my brother. And then they all got to the hospital about an hour later. The police came to the hospital to take a report on what happened to Tanya. She wasn't able to give a description of her attacker because she had been asleep when he broke in and he quickly put a blindfold over her face. She wasn't able to say how tall he was, what kind of build he had, or what he looked like. After the police questioned Tanya, they started their investigation at her apartment where they discovered that the man came in through a window that he'd cut the screen out of. He had cut the cord from one of her lamps to tie Tanya up with. He had brought a knife with him, and the headband that he put over Tanya's eyes he must have brought with him, because she had never seen it before. It seemed like he knew what he was doing and had planned it out. In fact, Tanya remembers that earlier that morning, when she returned from her parents' house, she had come home to find that her apartment door had been locked differently than she normally locked it. I always just locked the deadbolt and never locked the handle. And so when I returned like that Sunday morning before I went to my friends for the Super Bowl party, I unlocked the deadbolt and I couldn't open the door. And so I had to unlock the handle as well. So that means that somebody had been in there and locked the handle before they left. So I don't know, did they have a key? I mean, possibly they had a key. Maybe they crawled through the window and then they just locked the handle to lock the door behind them. Maybe they spocked out the place while I was at my parents' house, but I know that I had to unlock the handle with my key in order to get in. So maybe they didn't have a key and maybe they just crawled back through the window. It's like, well, I don't normally lock the handle. That's weird. I did think that, like it was weird because I don't normally lock the handle, but I didn't think anything more about it until all of this had happened. I definitely think I was targeted. I don't know whether he saw me at work because I was there all day, every day in the back booth at McDonald's. I don't know if he saw me getting out of my apart getting out of my car at my apartment on crutches but i definitely believe i was targeted because i was on crutches i don't know if i know him he definitely knew something about me by the time my parents and brother got there there was a victim's advocate there with me and she's amazing she walked me through all that was going to happen all like if this had ever gone to court, she would be there. If this guy's ever caught, she would be there. My brother went to get like some clothes and stuff that I would need for the next couple days while I was at my parents' house. So they 
you know, obviously gathered a lot of evidence from my apartment and from my body. The DNA belonging to the rapist was tested, but there was no match in the database. Only three out of four rapes are actually reported to law enforcement, so it was possible that he had attacked someone before, but maybe she just didn't report it. It seemed like he knew what he was doing, like he had done it before. There were no leads, and it seemed like the case was at a standstill. And then, on April 20th, 1999, two teenagers entered Columbine High School armed with shotguns. They killed one teacher, 12 high school students, and injured 21 more. The two teens also made bombs, but luckily, the bombs didn't detonate. The Columbine High School massacre sent shockwaves through the community and the nation. The two shooters were also students at the high school. 17-year-old Dylan Klebold and 18-year-old Eric Harris decided to go on a rampage because of the constant bullying that they received at the school. The two eventually killed themselves, and the nation watched in disbelief. Because of the massacre, Tanya's case was pushed to the side. So everything that was on the Colorado Bureau of Investigation's plate was shoved to the back because of Columbine shootings. I just became like a number like thrown off in the distance. And I mean, that's frustrating, but in the same sense, like I don't have to face this person. And I believe that if he ever did this again, his DNA was gonna bust him. So I didn't like really worry about it. I, you know, my thought was, I need to live on. Like I, I've lived through this. I need to, I need to share my story. I need to not let this become me. Like, yes, I'm a victim, but I can become so much more. In a strange twist, the lead investigator on Tanya's case was arrested for soliciting prostitutes. And then in August, he committed suicide in jail. So my case really never went any further. I was researching crimes in the area. I was researching just stories of rape in general, no matter where they happened. But I just thought, you know, if I find a story that's similar, I can at least go to the police department or the victim's advocate and talk to them about it and see if there is a similarity or a match in DNA. I mean, I guess I thought I could be a sleuth and started watching and reading all kinds of crime stories. And I mean, this was before podcasts, but I watched the forensic file shows and tried to find to see if there was something similar, but it's never gone farther other than me being a victor and not a victim. After the shock of the Columbine shooting died down, I asked Tanya why she didn't pursue an investigation any further. Because I don't have a face. I'm grateful that I don't have a face to put to that. Because what if I met somebody that was completely amazing that looked like him? I mean, I've, I moved away. I got away from that area. My family still lives there. I still have friends that live there. But I've gone on with my life and I've shared my story thousands of times. I have a wonderful husband and three amazing kids. My parents are still alive. My brother and sister-in-law and niece and nephew are still here. And I think part of my will to survive was that my nephew, when this happened, was six months old. And I wanted to live to see him grow up. 
and I have, and he's amazing. I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a cousin, I'm a friend, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, and I'm a survivor. Always will be. What's helped Tanya over the years is her loving family, her support system, all of her friends. She's helping women all across the country. Tragedy strikes, but life is so much more worth it than giving up and losing hope. I know a lot of rape victims are afraid to come forward and afraid to share their story. But for me, having my story out there, even though this guy is unknown, I can share my story. I can share what I've done with my life since this. Closing up and not sharing that, I would feel so hopeless and afraid. And I know that I have a team of warriors behind me with every time I share my story. It gives them hope too. If you or someone you know would like to share their story of survival on the podcast, contact me at thelipstickfilespod at gmail.com or you can direct message me at the Lipstick Files on Instagram. Till next time.